You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies, sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, and Aaron Shaler, our new friend, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. Our guest today is thrice elected. Yes. Marion County Prosecutor Terry Curry. Uh, deep background here in the city, in the state, and we're very pleased to have you. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Yeah, I'm hoping this is fun. <laughs> well, if it's not, I guess you could just throw me in jail, right? Yeah. Guess I could. <laughs> you are born and bred here. Tell us a little bit about your, about your background. Uh, my parents are both originally from Ellettsville, uh, and uh, my uh, dad... Uh, uh, went into the Navy in World War II, sort of a typical story of parents of uh, you know, someone my age, um, and uh, then uh, went to IU and was a lifelong educator. And so as he moved uh, up uh, from assistant basketball coach and teacher to head basketball coach and teacher to principal to school superintendent, we moved around a fair amount you know, when I was a kid. Uh, we went from Ellettsville to Liberty to back to Ellettsville to Bedford to Mooresville to Shelby County and then back to Mooresville. And my dad was uh, superintendent at Mooresville for 20 years. And then uh, I uh, went to Butler undergrad. Did Was he superintendent or involved in Mooresville when Sammy Davis was there, the Medal of Honor recipient? Uh, He would have been there uh, when Sammy Davis uh, graduated from high school. Well, no, I'm sorry. Uh, He would have come back to Mooresville not long after Sammy Davis graduated from high school. I'm hoping to get Sergeant Davis on the podcast. It would be amazing he's incredibly engaging great story wonderful sense of humor and if you read his medal of honor citation you just you simply cannot believe he survived right right and you know i'm sure you already know the those sequences in uh, in the forest gump uh are actually from his what he did in vietnam as well as the medal presentation at the white house i had heard a story at the time that you, you know when you get when you receive the medal of honor it usually replaces it's an upgrade, right? Like a lot of times you get awarded an army, a distinguished service cross, and then you get the medal of honor and then you don't keep your cross. But it, I'd read, and I'll have to ask him if I can get him on that. His exploits were so amazing that he was awarded a silver star. Then he eventually received the medal of honor that they allowed him to keep his silver star because what he did was so incredible. Um, but he's very, very humble about it. You know, does a lot of work for veterans and his wife's sweetheart too. So I guess I need to make that call, see if he can come on. I'm not sure how often he comes back, but I bet he's back during May for the race. Went to Butler University. Was it Butler University because of a particular subject area or it's just where you wanted to go? This is beyond embarrassing uh, to admit, but uh, 
Um, I was, I was looking to go somewhere where I could play both golf and basketball. Uh, uh, I was, um, good enough at golf to play at a larger school, um, but not big enough or good enough to, to play basketball. And so I looked primarily at Evansville and Butler and, uh, ultimately settled on Butler because I did not want to get too far away from my high school, uh, steady. Uh, and after about 30 days at Butler and being around co-eds, um, my steady was history. Uh, but even though, so even though I made the decision for really stupid reasons, uh, I don't regret a thing. Butler, my experience at Butler was great. It's great education, great school, and everything's worked out very well. Were you recruited to play basketball? Did Tony no. Hinkle recruit you? Was no. he still around then? Not specifically recruited. And you know, you're going to think I'm making this up. Uh, but my high school basketball coach uh, was actually um, a, a former Butler player. His name was Larry Ramey, and he had played at Butler. And uh, so that was part of the Butler connection. Um, and uh, I had qualified uh, at that point, been accepted and qualified for an academic scholarship that was going to pay half of my tuition. And I literally went up and met with Tony Hinkle who then had been oh. given information about what I had done in high school, what I played. And he then offered me a scholarship with the other half of my tuition and books and told me literally that I could play basketball, golf, or baseball, whatever I wanted. Really? <laughs> Truly. So, so let's fast forward before we go talk about your law school career or whatever. What was the feeling when Butler made the – title game two years in a row oh just you know to this day just seems surreal uh, to, to think about that you know a school of that size uh even with the tradition they have you know the 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 first year uh, obviously you know they had a great combination of players and and had a great season but then to turn around and repeat that the next year was just yeah it was it was a lot of fun obviously for butler grads over the losses yet uh the, you know, obviously the worst is, is you know, Hayward's shot, you know, rimming out there, to which would have beaten Duke. That's painful. <laughs> <laughs> we had Tom Coverdale on the hmm. podcast a few weeks ago, right at, right at the end of March Madness. And I asked him about, I think it was 2002, when IU made it to the final game and lost to Maryland. Is he over it? And he just was like, no. Yeah. He made no bones about it. Like, it's something you'll never forget and want, it'll be with you for a long time. I. I completely get it. Uh, were you able to attend both games? No, no. Actually, the one that was here, I'd been offered tickets, and uh, but I'd heard from so many people that the the sight lines were were horrible, and uh, you know, unless you're right down close. And so I, I literally decided, no, I just want to be able to stay at home and and watch the game, which I did. You know, having gone then uh, a few years ago when we had the Final Four. Um, uh, here, uh, let's see, that was when Duke won. Duke beat Wisconsin in the final, and so I had tickets there, and I've told people I think my t- uh, seats were in northern Johnson County. <laughs> so, yeah, basketball games at Lucas Oil Stadium, would, I mean, it's yeah, what the tickets, yeah, it's so, what the economics demand, but yeah, yeah. I couldn't imagine it. So I did actually play my freshman year at Butler, 
um, you know, I'm, I'm so old that uh, you, I don't know if you would recall, but um, uh, for a period of time, freshmen could not play in division one schools, right. could not play in major sports. And so um, uh, schools still had separate freshman teams for basketball, football, and baseball. And so I played both golf and uh, basketball my freshman year. And then after that, just played, played golf all four years. I think it's the famous story that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the time, Lou Alcindor, uh, went to UCLA, couldn't play his freshman year, played the next three years. His overall record in college was 88-2. and two. His freshman team repeatedly beat the varsity team at UCLA, which was a four-time defending national championship team. That's, that's exa- how good. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and at the same time frame, uh, George McGinnis and Steve Downing, as a freshman team at IU, beat the varsity in the preseason scrimmage also. Yeah, it tells you how much college sports has changed yeah. from you can play one year and leave or to your freshman or you couldn't play. Uh, <laughs> what made you decide to go to law school? You went to IU Law School, as I recall. Is that right? And is that something that you wanted to do, be an attorney? Yeah, I had uh, – at the time I was an undergrad at Butler. You know, there's still a lot of schools, and particularly at Butler, referred to some majors as – pre-law uh, <laughs> major, you know, and in reality it was political science and history. Uh, but, uh, yes, I, I anticipated, uh, when I went to Butler that that's what I wanted to do. Um, my senior year, um, uh, however, I started working at the Indianapolis news. Uh, I, uh, was married, had gotten married and, and, uh, worked at the old Indianapolis news, then went in the army for two years and came back, uh, and worked for two more years at Indianapolis News, um, and was not sure then whether I, I kind of liked journalism, and I wasn't sure. And then finally decided, you know, that yeah, I, I going to law school is what I wanted to do. And unfortunately, at that point, um, I was married, had a child. Uh, I'm not sure I could have afforded it, but for the GI Bill, and then I was able to attend law school on the GI Bill. I was going to ask you that. What made you decide to join the military? You must have joined in the early 70s, so that's before the draft was ended. Right. Uh, I uh, Did you have a high number? I had a very low number, <laughs> which <laughs> meant that I was going to get drafted that year. So my fourth year at Butler was um, uh, 71, uh, and so I... I knew that I was going to be drafted before the end of the year. Uh, going back to my scholarships, my scholarships were uh, exhausted at that point. I still needed like six hours to graduate after the four years there. Um, uh, and so I went ahead and, and uh, did a two-year enlistment just to uh, you know, get started on it because it was, it was inevitable that that was going to happen in 1971. So I, I did a two-year enlistment. Do you remember your draft number? Uh, 89. Everybody remembers it. It was such a, you can't conceive now in 2019 what a huge deal the draft was in the late 60s and early 70s, for obvious reasons for Vietnam, and that your number was mm-hmm. how you were, was going to dictate the next few years of your life. Yeah. You know, and every, you know, everyone has similar stories, you know, people of my age who, who went through that. But, you know, in my situation, one of my best friends, uh, uh, had a similar number, and yeah, he 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 was drafted before the year end. But on the other hand, two of my best friends 
um, had wrecked their knees playing freshman football, and they had real high numbers. So they, <laughs> they were never going to get drafted, but, but you know, they wouldn't have been eligible in any event. What did uh, you find uh, enticing about working in the media? Uh, and what exactly did you do for the news? I, I was um, I did just some general reporting, but for the most part, I covered um, federal government and which was primarily um, federal courts. Uh, and so I covered the federal courts uh, also did. Um, uh, there was not a, a specific person who did uh, concert reviews or album reviews, that sort of thing. And so all of our younger uh, staff members sort of passed that around. So I did some of that. Uh, and, and I just enjoyed it. Uh, I, I have decent writing skills and, um, I think one skill that I have that's, that's served me well, but first as a reporter and now as a, a trial attorney is I can be a pretty quick learn, you know, and, and being a trial attorney, you know, in any given subject, you, you have to be able to learn enough to be conversant on it. Uh, uh, you know, at least for those, uh, that week of trial, uh, and, and it, being a reporter, it was very similar, you know, that uh, on any given subject, you would need to research enough to be able to uh, intelligently uh, discuss it and, and obviously describe it for purpose of an article. So I, I, I did enjoy it. But then uh, uh, a couple of friends of mine uh, who had laid out a couple of years after undergrad uh, had started law school. And, and that, so I started thinking about it again. And I can't imagine now that we've done anything else than do that we had bill benner on the podcast a while ago do you remember him there oh sure absolutely and they were on the star side of course right. um and uh, as as you know uh the indianapolis news the star news were both owned by the pulliam family mm-hmm. and the news was the afternoon paper uh and uh so there was really not any overlap uh, between the staffs, uh, as such, but, but yeah, obviously you knew who the star, star reporters were. Do you remember uh, any of the concerts you reviewed? Freaking um, Strawberry Alarm Clock and, uh, uh Matt the Hoople and uh, <laughs> the, uh, I did a review of, um, oh geez, what's, um, he's a movie star. Oh, wrote, um, oh, drawing a blank. He had a whore. He was. He also played country music. Um, I can picture him. Um, me and Bobby McGee. He wrote that song. Christopherson. Yeah, yeah, Chris Christopherson. Yeah. yeah, he he played at like the Ritz or one of those places out on the East Side. Uh, only played for about thirty minutes. Was clearly drunk or high. Surly <laughs> worst concert. So that was one. Uh, I uh, I did a review of uh, Bob Dylan and the band uh, when they did the uh, oh Robbie Roberts and the band. Uh, yeah, when mm-hmm. they did their final tour, they played at uh, Assembly Hall in IU. Um, I um, I did a review of uh, John Hyatt's very first album. Uh, the you know John Hyatt's mm-hmm. from Indy and. Uh, uh, his mom worked with one of my fraternity brother's sisters and learned that, uh, that I did the reviews. And literally, I came into the newsroom one day, and they said, this woman wants to see. And it was John Hyatt's mother who, who brought me the album uh, and asked if I could review it. I did. I, st- I have that album to this day. I still have it. Did you? Did Hanging you, Around the Observatory. That was the name of the album. <laughs> well... We had Mark Allen on the mm-hmm. on the podcast right. to talk about a lot of the things uh, he reviewed, and actually, uh, Lundquist from the Star is going to come on. Excuse me, David Lindquist from the Star is going to come mm-hmm. on 
and talk about a lot of the things that he did. That seems to be a pretty darn good way to make a living. Go yeah. to concerts and for free and have great seats. And all you got to do is just say, okay, here's what I think. Absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, um, they, uh, of course now, you know, you seldom see that stuff in the hard copy. It's, you know, it's just online. Uh, but, and, but I, I still read them for sure. So, so you go from being a newspaper reporter, you decide to become a lawyer are there any other uh, occupations that poll at 8% popularity that you'd like to share with us that you decided to take your hand at? IRS agent? Anything else? You seem to be kind of like someone who doesn't shy away from doing the tough job. Well, you know, uh, even once I started uh, practicing law, once I graduated from law school, I, I uh, think that some thought um, I couldn't hold a job. I like to think of it as new challenges, <laughs> but you know, I... Even once I uh, graduated, I initially um, um, uh, worked at a firm, uh, a a small uh, litigation boutique firm, Summer Bard here in town, Um, and and, uh, worked there for about four years. Literally, I had lunch one day with John Tinder, who at that time was uh, chief deputy in Steve Goldsmith's office, and... and, uh, after we chit-chatted, had lunch, he called me the next day. He said, hey, would you have any interest in coming over here and doing white-collar crime? I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I went over there for three years under Steve Goldsmith, uh, went back to the same firm as a partner, uh, worked there about five more years, hated it, um, and missed being at the prosecutor's office. And so I, I uh, went back to the prosecutor's at the very start of uh, Jeff Modisett's term, and worked there three more years. Um, then I hung out a shingle for a period of time. Um, uh, as solo practice. Um, what got- drew you to being to to being a prosecutor? And, and I notice that you know you you've got a terrific reputation um, in the political world as someone who plays it straight. You worked for Goldsmith. You worked for Modisette. Um So let's just throw politics out for a second. And we'll get to your run in 2010 when you won the first time. But is it is being in the prosecutor's office seen as the white hat, like you're the good guys and the other folks are, quote unquote, the bad guys? Is it is it that sort of thing? Or what draws you to the office to working with that team doing that job, putting people in jail? I, uh, you know, and I. I wouldn't view the description as that stark, you know, in terms of white hats. I mean, clearly, you know, our responsibility is to prosecute any crime uh, that touches upon Marion County. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we resolve 30,000 criminal cases a year. That doesn't mean we're looking to put 30,000 people in prison. You know, in any, any particular situation, the circumstances might dictate that, you know, we need to find a way to get that person out of the criminal justice system. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess as a, a general proposition, uh, how we describe why I love doing it and why I think you, everyone in our office enjoys doing it is uh, just the, the gratification of, of getting a result for people who have been victimized by a crime. Now, you know, in some circumstances, that means someone needs to go to prison, and and they need to go to prison not only as as uh, uh, getting justice for for the victimized person, but people who have demonstrated 
they shouldn't be living among us. But but at the very other end of the spectrum, you know, they're for me personally, we get significant gratification out of out of finding alternative ways to get individuals out of the criminal justice system and and hopefully on a path where they're going to become productive members of our community. Well, 50 years ago, the white hat was Perry Mason. And it seems in the last 10 to 20 years, the white hat is Jack McCoy from Law and Order. Do you do you See, get? You had to describe who that was. I wouldn't have known who that was. <laughs> I, I, I do not. I do not watch law shows, TV shows, movies. <laughs> but you don't like shows that depict courtrooms and or movies that depict quite courtroom dramas. Oh, it's not that I dislike them. It's just you know those of us who do it know how unrealistic it is. And even and, something and, like Law and Order, where the prosecutors actually lose. <laughs> I remember Judge Altice, who's now Justice Altice. Justice right. Justice Altice. No, he is Court judge. Of appeals, he's Court judge. Appeals judge. Yeah. He's Only judge Supreme Court is justice. justice. Thank you. Yeah. Is I talked to him about it one time when I was in one of my law and order phases, uh-huh. which I've, of course, bequeathed to my kids. And he said, I like this show. He goes, the show doesn't always get it right. He goes, but it's nice to know that they actually lose because Perry Mason famously won every, every case. But it, it did seem to shift the focus towards the prosecutor's side of things and how hard these guys work for very little to no money. And that would seem to be ubiquitous when it comes to prosecutors. No, they're not going to make that much money and they do it anyway, partly for training, maybe for later, but perhaps out of just pure altruism. Sure. No, I, people ask me all the time. And if you're going to ask me this question, I'm preempting your question, but (laughs) people literally ask me all the time what I like best about my job. Uh, and I, my answer is the same every time as I say, I I get to come into an office every single day where uh, about 400 employees where virtually every single person there loves what they do. They get a lot of satisfaction on what they do. Uh, we all have each other's back and it's just a great atmosphere to, to come in and, and work every day. You probably worked with Carol Johnson. Uh-huh. Yeah. When I was a deputy prosecutor, I did. Yeah. So Carol Johnson, who uh, passed away several years ago, was the mother of my best friend in grade school named Chris Johnson. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I saw her all. I remember when she was in law school. Yeah. Carol. IQ was, of about 290. Yeah. Carol, uh, it, it's you and you said something about training. Uh, you know, one of the things we know going in is, is that most people, particularly the attorneys, are not going to end up staying there for their entire life. I mean, they're, you know, you already said it we don't we're not paid well uh and uh so we know that most people will will move on but there are on occasion individuals who who make it a career for their entire uh career and carol well, C- carol was one she was a career prosecutor yeah a wonderful wonderful mother a great person uh, you're listening to leaders and legends presented by veteran strategies and sponsored by the girl scouts of central indiana and our good friend aaron shaler who's a mortgage broker with grandview lending you worked in the prosecutor's office. You did other things. You hung out your shingle. And then sometime in 2010, you decided, what the heck? I'll throw my hat in the ring, as Teddy Roosevelt famously said. What made you decide to actually run for public office and that office? Yeah. And actually, I had um, been a candidate for prosecutor uh, once before, back in 2001, 2002, uh, when oh, it was going to... Yeah, well, I didn't. I didn't run the primary. I went to slating, and and uh, I was not slated, and uh, um, never thought I I would do it again. In two thousand nine, uh, I was literally exchanging um, emails with someone uh, 
uh, about golf. And uh, in one of his replies, he said, hey, uh, there's a group I was once you on for prosecutor. And uh, so several people talked to me about it. Um, obviously, I'm a Democrat and the people in the party. Um, and I still wasn't sure I wanted to do it uh, at that point in my life. And, and uh, um, my wife at the time, now my ex-wife, I, she was still pretty bitter over what had happened in 2002. And I, I said to several people, I said, I said, uh, I don't know if I want to do it, but I said, Sheila's really not going to be. Uh, but it was almost a blessing to disguise, right? Yeah. Because I think Jim Osborne, who's a good man, yeah. uh, ran against Carl Brizzy, and Carl Brizzy won yeah. handily. 2002 right. was a good Republican year after 9-11. I think they swept right. the right. county, except right. for Frank Anderson, another right. good man. And so maybe that was a blessing. Yeah, well, and then, so I, I finally I went, I, I told uh, my wife, I said, people are asking me to run. And I thought she would just say, and she just said, she didn't hesitate, she goes, she goes, no, you need to do it. She goes, you're the happiest uh, you've ever been in the time I knew you when you were at the prosecutor. <laughs> you need to do it. And so obviously I made the decision to do it. Um, you know, uh, did the usual things that you do when you're uh, uh, touching base with various uh, individuals in the party and around the, the county. And um, now I can't imagine I wouldn't have done it. That's, uh, that's, did your that's golf, golf prowess help you raise money, help you win friends and influence uh, people? Well, uh, we have, on the one hand, we have had a golf outing each year as, as one of our fundraisers, and you know we've not raised a ton of money doing that. But on the other hand, the being Marion County prosecutor and the twenty four seven nature of this has not been good for my golf game. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> I think Mayor Ballard at one time was like a seven mm-hmm. handicap or eight, but mm-hmm. he said he goes. He goes, then when you're mayor, everybody wants to play political golf. Like, that's different than yeah. regular golf. Yeah, no, one, one of the, after I was prosecutor, uh, uh, one of, uh, one day I'd, I'd set up a game, uh, uh, and it was uh, the bipartisan foursome. I, I had uh, Mayor Ballard, uh, Ryan Vaughn, uh, and uh, Vernon Brown. Uh, yeah, because uh, Ryan, who has been on the podcast, he and he and Vernon are close. Yeah. Here, they're good friends. Yeah. So, who would you choose if you had to put together your foursome of besides the one you just mentioned of the best golfers you've played with, politicos? Who would you choose? Oh, that's tough. Um, Mayor Ballard had a good swing. Uh, the greens drove him crazy. They were really fast. Uh, so Jason Dudich, who was the so former city controller and state budget director, who's now moved to UND. He was like a six or seven handicap. He was really he played at IU or played a lot. Uh, I honestly, I I cannot think of uh, many other. Uh, public officials who are worth a darn. In fact, some, some are just horrible, (laughs) which I guess is a good thing. You know, we might have a question about their commitment to their job. I remember when I started my own business, uh, in 2010, one of the people I took to lunch to ask their, uh, opinion, ask his opinion, and soon to be, uh, whose podcast you will have heard before you hear this one is Ed Tracy, former mm-hmm. chairman of the Marion County Democratic Party, a couple of times. And I asked him, you know, I'm a veteran. I can start a veteran business. You know, I think there's some advantages. What are your 
thoughts. All I did was cost me lunch at the Golden Ace. <laughs> and I told him, I said, you know, one of the things I worry about is I don't drink alcohol and I don't play golf. And I worry about that losing that networking edge. Mm-hmm. And Ed's reply was very interesting. He goes, Robert, golf is a waste of time. <laughs> I go, but you don't get business through golf? He goes, no, you work while others play golf. He goes, that's not a hindrance. It's actually a help. Completely opposite of what I thought he was going to say. Because, uh-huh. you know, he's political and has done the right. the rounds all those years. No pun intended. And uh, it does seem to be a uniting game. You mm-hmm. mentioned the bipartisanness. How does someone navigate the political waters these days, especially in an office where there's so much scrutiny and so much opportunity for people to point their finger and say that Curry, he's just playing politics. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, clearly it, what I, my answer uh, would not be applicable to say our first run. Uh, but I, I actually heard Bart Peterson say this at one time, uh, which is ironic because obviously he ultimately lost an election, but he he said you know the best reelection strategy is is to govern well, um, and and so you know for me uh, I've always felt that if we just do our job now obviously it has to be get communicated to the public in some manner that we're doing our job, but if we just do our job and focus on our job, then uh, the political stuff the election will take care of itself and you know i i feel like that that's that's what uh we've done and and obviously the the demographics of of the county is a benefit but on the other hand i just i do feel that we just get positive feedback all the time uh from the public and the other part of it is you know our office is is out in the community you know, I'm out in the community constantly. Our community prosecution division's out, and, and so there's a face of the office mm-hmm. uh, that's out uh, in the community all of the time. And you know, I, I get feedback about you know that uh, Drew Wignall out in Northwest has been great helping us address you know problem such and such in our neighborhood. You know, and so all of that stuff is number one stuff we should be doing if we're going to do our job. But the, the, the secondary aspect of that or residual benefit of that is, is that if, for reelection, you know, we've done our job and people perceive we've done our job. Is it, I would say, along with the sheriff and the mayor, the highest profile jobs in Marion County, but you also have to work with the state. You also have to work with, with the feds. Is it hard to maintain a balance and not? And this isn't about personalities per se, because there's good people in all these offices or hold these positions. But in a sense, is it, does it stuff become territorial or is it more like, you know, Terry, I'm happy if you handle that or we're happy to throw this to the feds, that sort of thing, because they're high profile and, and, and kind of high risk, high reward positions. Mm-hmm. I, um, I obviously only have the, uh, perspective of, of being involved in this job here but I can tell you uh, for a fact that um, I've had so many different uh, federal uh, investigative uh, 
agency personnel, you know, including even the uh, agents in charge of, say, DEA, FBI, who have served all over the country, uh, say to me, and I'm, I know they're being genuine because I've heard it from so many, that they have never worked anywhere where everyone works uh, together so well. Uh, and uh, we, we are in constant communication among all of those agencies, you know, starting with the fact that uh, our office actually serves 30-some police agencies just here in Marion County. Yeah, most, there's drug most, task force. Most people don't realize it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm talking about Southport, Beach Southport. Grove. Every college has a police yeah. department. And then, and, yeah, and then with the uh, federal agencies, I mean, we, we are truly, it's, it's not just a cliche, we're truly all on the same, same page. And so it, it's, it's a great uh, way to approach and, and do your ties okay. here help? I mean, I'm going to I'm going to make a guess here. Correct if I'm wrong, but I would imagine you've known Marion County Sheriff and future podcast guest, Carrie Forstall for deck. I mean, you had to have known him for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in many ways. Uh, and Hogg and Mayor Hogg said you've probably known him for a while. Yeah. I mean, all that has I, to I help. say all the time. I, I've I've known Joe since he used to be fun. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor, we'd love to have you on. That, yeah. that wasn't no. me. No, I, I've, I've told him that. <laughs> Does it, I'm not sure he disagrees with me. <laughs> well, he's got a big job. The mayor a, of a million people is a big job. He has a is big it, job. Is it, the mayors are kind of, there's a club. There's one of the best books I've ever read and would recommend to anyone who likes history and likes American or, or modern American presidential history. It's a book called The President's Club. And I think it's Nancy Gibbs maybe and Michael Duffy but it's a book about how ex-presidents got along with their successors. Terrific stories. 99%, 90% of the time, they get along great. Mm-hmm. Frosty's relationship actually was between Truman and Eisenhower, which lasted really and kind of until Kennedy's funeral in 63, and they reconciled. But anyway, mayors kind of famously have a club, you know, Greg Ballard and Bart Peterson and Luger and um, Hogsett. Do prosecutors do the same thing? Do you ever ring up Scott Newman or or Steve Goldsmith and just kind of say, hey, or have lunch with with Modisette? Does that kind of exist at all? No, not really. Uh, um, uh, Scott, uh, who I uh, admire a lot, obviously he's had health issues since uh, he served as prosecutor. Um, Steve Goldsmith, uh, actually out of the blue, uh, it's probably been three years ago now. Uh, his assistant contacted me and said he was going to be in town and just wanted to come by and say hello. And he came and we just chit chatted on a Friday morning for about was, two hours. Is that weird? Uh, Your uh, former boss and now you're sitting in his not, seat? Not, not really. Not really. Uh, Modest had moved to California, so he's, he's not even around here at this point. But so, no, not really. Um, I mean, what, what happens more is, you know, I suppose just like any profession where people work together um you know is i'm still uh in touch with lots of uh attorneys here in town who were deputy prosecutors you know when when i was a deputy prosecutor uh back when we all had hair and and were younger <laughs> uh, uh and so clearly you know that that group you I mean you, you develop a real bond you know working in our office there's no question what's it like going from working for the man to being the man what's the difference do you have more sympathy? Do you have more empathy? Do you have more understanding of what your $45,000 a year sex crimes prosecutor has to deal with? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I, I think I think that's fair. And 
uh, one of the things that that you know, we've tried to do from day one um, is to make sure, you know, in an office of 400 people that, that no one thinks that they're being neglected. You know, our, our child support division, which I, you know, I'm not criticizing any of my predecessors. I think they were always um, uh, treated like the, the bastard stepchild, if I can say that mm-hmm. on your podcast. You can. <laughs> over, the, over the years. Uh, uh, and they do but that's very, real they, money they, for real people. They who do are very, on very that. important. I mean, we have, have fifty thousand open child support files. We collect a hundred million dollars a year in child support for custodial parents. It's it's significant work. And so, you know, I think one thing, you know, when when you're a deputy, you know, you're you're in in your little um, you know silo. You know, in, in my case, I was doing white collar crime, and you know, some some street crime cases. But you know, I I guess as the prosecutor as I should, I've got the big picture, you know, of, sure. of, of, of our office and what makes it work. I mean, it's, it's, you know, um, significant as we have this conversation, this is administrative professionals week right now. And, and, you know, so I, I think in one way, yeah, that, it, um, you know, we, we, I'm conscious of the fact that when we're trying to get our employees paid appropriately, that it, we're not only talking about, you know, our attorneys right out of law school, it's people are coming in as our paralegals, you know, our victim advocates and the, the work they do is, is just as significant as everyone, as everyone else in the office. Forgive the phrasing, but is it a crime? How little prosecutors are paid? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we, uh, um, we lost last year, um, 62, uh, attorneys in the year. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 32, I'm sorry, 32 last year. Um, and so, and, and the vast majority of the attorneys we've lost in the last couple of years have, um, not gone to law firms or, or private practice. They've gone to other prosecutors offices, uh, where they have smaller offices. So that's smaller, uh, budgets and and they can afford to, to pay fifteen twenty thousand dollars more so um i i respect uh uh fatty Cadora, uh the city county mm-hmm. controller right now and and fatty <laughs> has done a great job um but he he probably uh um uh, cringes every time he gets my email because you know we're we're just working very hard and then i will say this uh we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of years but i mean you know the idea that you know young people are coming out of law school you know with student debt and then doing very very important work for the public and and getting paid you know what what our attorneys are paid as is, is, is exceedingly what's unfortunate what's the average a rough idea um, what the average would be we we have um uh, our brand new attorneys right out of law school start at $48,000. Um, uh, our major felony, um, prosecutors, non-supervisor major felony prosecutors are all probably making, um, 60 to high sixties. You know, these are people who are prosecuting murder cases and, mm-hmm. and the most serious offenses. We had, a um, an attorney who retired at the, um, first during my first term, uh, he had been there for 38 years as a deputy prosecutor is at that point, the highest paid deputy in the office. And he was making $92,000. Yeah, so. And he could have tripled, quadrupled that on the outside. If he had chosen to go that route, perhaps. Yep. 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 
the law profession gets a gets a beating. I'm I'm not here to defend it necessarily. <laughs> How would Some you, of us deserved. <laughs> well, Shakespeare didn't do it any good. Uh, <laughs> Henry V, I believe, isn't that right? Yeah. Henry V, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Right. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. But. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about the legal profession, if you could wave a magic wand, that you would change, reform, make better? Or is it just like this is the hazard of what we do for a living? Oh, I, I think, you know, uh, most people would say... Um, that if we could have um, a more civil uh, approach to the practice, and I'm not obviously describing all attorneys, but you know, I think um, it is by definition an adversarial process. If if you are a, a trial attorney, sure, you know, and that's been my life. You know, sure, I've never been tax attorney or probate attorney, or, you know, which is the different areas of practice. But those involved in, in in a litigation, whether it's on the civil side or, or criminal, um, uh, I think we've just lost some level of, of, of civility. Um, and marrying society as a whole. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. In other words, people say that civility in society as a whole has diminished. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but but you know, in the practice. Um, we need to be able to be objective, you know, about our, our cause, you know, whether that's prosecuting a case or whether you're, you know, filing a civil case, we need to be objective about it and realize that the person on the other side is not your enemy, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and clearly there's so many examples of those who, you know, we, we have the ability to try a case against each other. And then, you know, at, at the end of the day, drink a beer and, and be friends. You know, Jimmy Voyles is uh, the, sure. the best example that comes to mind. And uh, I just feel that, you know, and I, it's not just me. I know many have that same feeling that, that uh, it's sort of win at any cost. And so if I could fix one thing, it would just what we all could be thoroughly professional and, and civil in, in approaching um, our jobs. What's it like as a trial attorney at the prosecutor's office to win, to turn around and look at the family of a victim uh, and know that you've helped bring a sense of closure or justice. And then what's it like to turn around and look them in the eye after you lose? Yeah. The, um, I, I guarantee you that um, every single uh, major felony deputy prosecutor would tell you that, you know, if you've, if you've won a, a, a horrible sex crimes case or, or a homicide, you know, just to, to get that hug that you get sure. from the victim or the victim's family. Um, you know, it sounds corny, but you know, that's, that's what makes it worthwhile. And, you know, for me, it's interesting too, that, that, you know, it's sort of an unspoken understanding in the office that that's, that's, you know, why we do this work, but we don't go around wearing our sleeve. You know, no one goes around talking to each other within the office about that. But, you know, in this context, uh, I can describe it for you. I guarantee you that's what every single deputy prosecutor uh, would say. You know, and then, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, 
first of all, if you if you're going to be a trial attorney, you're going to lose cases. You're, you're, that's a given. You know, you you are there are going to come circumstances where you lose a case. How do you get and, over it? And on, I just can't understand how you could get over it. And, and you know, it it's it is difficult. You know, and and you know, there there are occasions when you know that uh, the victim you know, might have hard feelings, but I think for the most part they they see how hard we work. They see how much we put into it, and, and, and you know they appreciate. You know, even though they're horribly disappointed they appreciate that you know we we've made the effort but oh yeah i i tried and uh when i was a deputy prosecutor i tried a nine-week uh securities fraud trial the jury was out four days and eventually came back with not guilty after four days oh yeah i, I wanted to slip my wrist at that point <laughs> when was the last time you were in the elevator on the treadmill driving a car and a case you lost just flashed in your mind and you're like, man, I should have won that. Or God, I can't believe I lost that. You don't have to say the case, obviously, but is that something that happens? Oh yeah. You think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No question. A friend of uh, mine was yeah. murdered in 1997. I believe his name's Jeff Fosnott, best basketball player he ever would have met. He was killed at a bar in John Wayne's named John Wayne's in Southport. And it's the only time I was ever in the courtroom for something like that. And actually his, his parents let me live in their basement for two months before I went in the military, January, December, January, 1986, 987. And he's one of my very best friends and it's a loss. We all still feel to this sure. day. His birthday was just uh, uh, in early April, but to see the look on their faces that the man who killed their son was just going to walk away a free man. Um, it was devastating. And, and and I I'm I'm related to it through friendship, mm-hmm. but if that was my job is to put that man in jail and I didn't do it, it just makes me respect the the profession of prosecuting, if that's the right term, even more, because you are so invested. The famous and wouldn't ask, ever ask you about the trial; that would be unfair. But the famous or infamous heart wrenching video of uh, Goldman's sister and father after the OJ verdict where you mm-hmm. just watch that family just be devastated. It, does that drive you to stay in the game or does sometimes it just makes it too painful to be in the game? And I use game colloquially, mm-hmm. of course. Right. No, I, I think, you know, if you, you, as you go into this, you have to go in with the realization that, that, that could be a result. You know, if, if you if you're going, like I said, if you if you're going to be a trial attorney, you you have to understand that you're going to occasionally lose a case, uh, and that all you can do is 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 the best you can do and put everything into it. I mean, I, the one thing that I, I wish the public understood is is the the challenges we face, you know, to prosecute cases, you know, with with just uh, witnesses uh, recanting on us, you know, witnesses you know, dodging us, uh, uh, the, it, it is, it is a challenge and I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our office and the success we have given the challenges, uh, that, that we do face every single week. Um, but again, you know, the, what makes it worthwhile is, is the successes that you, that you do have. Um, uh, you know, and for me, even though, 
you know, I've at this point, I wish I had more time. I tried one case the first term. I tried one case the second term. I'm handling the case uh, currently. Um, so I don't get to try cases a lot, but I do pretty frequently get feedback, you know, where someone will drop me a note about, you know, how much they appreciate our office did and, and naming obviously the various staff members who, who worked on their case. And, uh, um, so you, you, you just keep uh, doing the job week after week, uh, knowing that, that you will have those successes and dealing with, the with the uh, disappointments. I mean, you're, your comment about your, your friend, um, you know, one of the things that, that we have to do just every single week is, is meeting with people who have either they've been victimized by crime or being the families of homicide victims. And, and, uh, uh, and frequently in homicide cases um, uh, where there's a potential consideration of death penalty or, or life without parole, I meet with the families also, and and I every time I am in one of those meetings, the, the same thing occurs to me, which is I realize myself that I could not, I can't begin to comprehend the anger and grief that that you must experience from losing a, a family member or a friend uh, to a violent crime. It's just, I mean, it's it's destructive to all of us, and we we still think of him and um, talk about him and text about him and remember him all the time he was a singularly um lively individual mm-hmm. and uh it's it's still awful we right, don't we right. don't ever let it go and um uh, the other thing that kind of in, uh, inspires me uh uh in this regard is i i am always just uh, uh i don't know if humbled's the right word but just uh i it's incredible to see how often individuals in that situation ultimately handle their loss with dignity and grace. Uh, and, you know, Joe and Spencer Moore, who are retired police officers oh, yeah. who lost their son, David Moore, are, are the perfect example of that. And, uh, uh, you know, clearly they have the ability to summon, you know, something, an energy and a, a faith uh, to to move past it, and it's it's something that I've seen over and over and over. We have just a few minutes before we start the five questions, so if we can get through two or three things quickly, I wanted to ask you about, and you may not be able to answer, but I wanted to give you a chance to chat about it. Uh, it was a Saturday night, I think, and all of a sudden I heard this loud explosion in my house in Southport. I walked outside, and there's insulation all over my front yard. What in the world's going on? It was Richmond Hill. So I'm going to, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but when you look at the case and this is just obviously based on my reading uh, from media reports, I have no inside knowledge. You just want to go kind of ignorant Hilljacks decided to do this. Like what in the world are you thinking that you think that we're not going to discover what this was all about? Like this was a no brainer, not a no brainer, but like, it wasn't exactly some sort of deep thinking Einsteinian conspiracy. Now I know you may not be able to comment that way, but <laughs> when you get to something like Richmond Hill, do you just, the tragedy is terrible, but do you just shake your head and go, what, what in the world are you guys thinking? Oh, certainly. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things I said uh, more than once after that happened, you know, if, if, if the public or individuals who are inclined to do that knew the level of sophistication uh, of uh, the uh, uh, arson investigators and ATF, um, 
you would never think about doing that because clearly they, they understood from the first moment there were clues. I mean, the, I'll give you one example is that the, the uh, microwave was, had blown from inside out. And so, you know, if it had just been a fire, normal fire explosion, it might have been charred, it might have been dented, but there's no reason it would have blown from, from inside out. And so, yeah, clearly from day one. On the other hand, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say I take offense, but I, 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 I respond when people uh, think that that was a laydown case because uh, uh, that both those trials went to trial, were tried, one in South Bend, one in Fort Wayne, our deputy prosecutors are doing about a four-week trial with 180 witnesses and over 2,000 pieces of evidence trying to case out of their hotel room. And so, I mean, the, the public, again, will never appreciate the, what an undertaking that was to try those cases. Agree. I think that these, I mean, and public defenders, too, are, are paid at about Absolutely. half of what they should be paid. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, at a minimum. Um, you were outspoken this past year about the need for hate crimes legislation. Uh, we're not political on the show uh, per se, unless we're laughing and getting along well. <laughs> but uh, take a minute or two and, and please tell uh, the audience, the leaders and legends, why you think and thought it was so important. All right. I mean, what we have you know, in 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 our sentencing statute, which is what we were talking about, is is there are provisions in there that are circumstances where, uh, in my mind, the point of having those in there, for example, you're subject to additional punishment if your crime is committed against an individual under the age of 12 or over the age of 65, for example, is that what those represent are, are uh, policy statements by the legislature uh, on, on behalf of, of the community, uh, on behalf of the state. Uh, and to me, there couldn't be any better example of that if, of crimes that are committed against someone because of their sexual orientation, because of their religion. Um, and uh, um, I, won't, I won't drill down the weeds too much. I mean, I even think that it should be an enhancement, meaning it should be a more serious offense, a level of offense, as opposed to an aggravator. Um, and so, you know, we, we actually became involved in it four years ago uh, and the, the more we've been involved and the more I've uh, talked about it in terms of testifying to legislature, um, speaking to community groups, I've, I've just become more convinced that uh, it, it's something that, that we should include in our criminal code. Death penalty, yes or no, for you personally? I know it's part of the statute and you have to say yes or no, but... Right. Uh, we We have filed uh in eight and a half years five um death penalty cases uh and um i i feel like as prosecutor you know without regard to personal feelings about it you by definition uh because it is the law have to be in in favor of it uh the one thing that we do um and we take very seriously is we we established a, a uh, process in the office, how we evaluate those cases. And the fundamental point is that decision has to be a very deliberative uh, process. And what we want in particular, uh, the family to understand when they come in and they are angry and grieving is, is how protracted that process will be. Uh, and, and, and so in four of those cases, we've, uh, resolved four of them by an agreement, uh, 
and a plea to life without parole. Um, and you have and, the and, victim's family sign off on that? Or? Yeah, and in, and in every, every situation, there's a, only one family member uh, in, in those four cases that still was against that decision. But once they have the ability to reflect um, and, um, and think about that, that protracted process, what becomes more important to them is the certainty of the result, the resolution, uh, and the ability to, to one degree or another move past it. Um, you know, and without exception, you know, every time we've resolved it, you know, there's, there are people in the public who beat us up, uh, but you know, they're, they're individuals who, uh, read it, uh, and the pay in the paper you know, on page one, and two weeks later, it's not part of their life. You know, it's sure. the victims families who have to live with it. And so I'm entirely comfortable with the way we've resolved these cases. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I guess there, there's a strain of conservative thought that's becoming more emergent these days against the death penalty. And I'm, associate myself with that even though people deserve it i'm against it even though people deserve it because of the the finality of the death penalty the very attractiveness of it is what renders it um uh irreversible do i think steve and judy deserve the death penalty for what he did to that mother and those kids absolutely i mean tex watson and sharon tate the list goes on and on smith and resinover right. what they did to jack orberg absolutely right. but but is it is it difficult to make that call, because I'm assuming it's a prosecutor, not a prosecutor's office call, but a Marion County prosecutor, Terry Curry call to say, yes, we will pursue it. No, we will not. Yes. I mean, you're right. And, you know, and what we do in our process is we have a committee and, and we obviously talk about it and get input. And ultimately, yes, it's, it's my decision. And uh, I hope it's obvious that that is not an easy, easy decision. Absolutely. You're listening to Leaders and Legends presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and our friend Aaron Shaler, who's a mortgage broker for Grandview Lending. Our guest today is Marion County Prosecutor Terry Curry, currently serving his third term, recently reelected in 2018. We've moved now to the five questions portion of the ex- podcast extravaganza. Are you ready? No one warned me about this. <laughs> we have a lot of mutual friends, sir. Someone should have told you. <laughs> they should have. <laughs> first question. Uh, what was your very first job? Um, paying job? Yes, sir. Uh, um, mowing grass at, at the uh, Triton Schools. Triton Central Schools on the in the Hancock County? No, Triton in Shelby County. Shelby County. Yes. Uh, my dad was superintendent. <laughs> 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 I knew someone. That's how I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that's my funny. First paying job. Uh, <laughs> I forgot my second question. Now I'm laughing. What was your first concert? Um, <laughs> it was at Clues. It was... Um, uh, the Love and Spoonful and the Association. That's 68, 69? Uh, I was a senior in high school and and uh, took the study that I abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Clues Hall, honey, where the, I'm going to attend school and abandon you in a year. <laughs> what If you could recommend any book... And the association were the headliners, by the way. Over Love and Spoonful? Yeah, yeah, if you can imagine that. I can't in hindsight, but... (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. 
if you could recommend any book to someone to read, which book would you recommend? Because it's well written, because of its impact. You don't want me to say this. Sure. <laughs> Audacity of hope. No, that's a, we're a, we're a friendly show. Yeah. We're we're happy people yeah. here on yeah. Leaders and Legends. Yeah. Why? Because of his message. We're yeah. obviously talking about book by former President Barack Obama. Yeah, just it it to me it it, it indicated a, a different direction, you know, in the way we were going to approach, and and I think to a certain extent that's what happened. Uh, not not entirely, and you know. So you remain a fan. I am a fan, big fan, most definitely. Were you? Did you? Did you endorse him over uh, Hillary Clinton? I guess in oh, eight, yeah. in eight, you weren't in office. No, yet, I wasn't in office, yeah. but you were part of it yeah. because there was a little bit of a divide yeah. in the state yeah. among Democrats. And I'm not sure anyone that. seeks my endorsement for president. You know, we got 20 candidates yet, and I haven't gotten a call from one of them. Mayor yet. Pete, <laughs> I got. Terry yeah. Curry's number. Yeah, yeah. I ran. <laughs> I actually ran the, the mayor Pete in 2010. That was when he ran for treasurer. Oh and, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's that's when when I met him and when I, at the time, I, you know, obviously without regard to people's politics, I had the same reaction. It's like, God, this guy's bright and and just real unassuming, you know. Just then, uh, just to just think about that before we get to the last two questions. We'll say it's very very quickly. 2010, he runs for treasurer against Richard Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Great Republican year. Murdoch wins by 15, 20 points over Pete Buttigieg. 2012, Murdoch is 15 minutes away from being a United States senator, <laughs> to quote Mike McDaniel. Now, Murdoch's out of politics. Pete becomes Mayor Pete. He's running for president, riding one of the most positive media waves we've probably seen since Barack Obama yeah, in 2008. That's fair. That's, fair. that's an interesting... Anyone who thinks there are permanent trends in politics or permanent popularity among politicians is has, is ignorant of history, A, and is mm-hmm. whistling past the graveyard, B. Uh, fourth question, if you could witness any event in history, which would you choose? Be there as it happens. Um, I don't know, just randomly off the top of my head, Gettysburg Address. Um, which was widely panned at the time. <laughs> um, you Lincoln aficionado, are you? No, not necessarily. But my wife and I are both just complete nerds about historical stuff, and you know, so go to Boston and you know, walk mm-hmm. the Patriot Trail and read oh, every beautiful. Sing, every single word of the 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 plaques. You know, just uh, all all of all of that would have been. Well, then fasc- you'll love our fasc- pod- fascinating to me to 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 witness to be witness to you'll love our podcast uh coming up with peter carmichael who is a graduate of pike went to ipui got his phd from penn state but is currently the head of the civil war institute at gettysburg college and it was a fascinating discussion i think it's a four-hour podcast i just wouldn't stop and a good friend of mine so i couldn't (laughs) stop asking questions last question last question if you could have dinner with anyone currently living whom would you choose? Barack Obama. That and Michelle. Sense. And Michelle. <laughs> There's a couple. There's a couple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're engaging. Yeah. And anyone who says there isn't has got a bias I can't understand. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but it's 
it's clear that he's a fun, engaging, delightful personality and, you know, wins hands down the person you want to have the beer with. Yeah, um, no, I, a trait that I admire in, in anyone is, uh, is self-assuming, self-deprecating sense of humor. And that's kind of like one of the reasons why, you know, Pete Buttigieg is, you know, I, I like Mayor Pete, but I just, I just love the way uh, Barack Obama and Michelle conducted themselves and continue to do so. It, it's funny if you, for a different president, for a different reason, if you look at some of the White House correspondent dinners where George W. Bush gets up there and makes fun of himself mercilessly. Uh-huh. Um, he no, seemed, I love that. He seemed to have fun with the fact that no one thought he was uh, articulate and, and uh-huh. did various other things. Uh, it's very kind of you to come on. I know you're very, very busy. Uh, we, well, that was fun. We are uh, grateful for your service as Marion County prosecutor. You, you've conducted yourself with class and professionalism. You have a terrific staff of very dedicated professionals whose contribution to our society every single day is severely underrated. And we appreciate it that you would come on. Thank well, you. Thanks. Prosecutor I appreciate Curry. that. And thank you for recognizing the 400 women and men who uh, work hard every day in our office. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.